This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Also from a data perspective, one of the issues with these types of incidents is underreporting, not just fears of retaliation of like individuals reporting things, but during natural disasters where infrastructure crumbles, records might not be kept as well. And people tend to look the other way more often than they should. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Smart Women, Smart Power is partnering with Girl Security for a special series dedicated to conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. My colleague Alexis Day helps moderate these insightful conversations. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Smart Women Smart Power is delighted to continue our Girls Security Takeover today with Girls Security Scholar Peyton Tranter. Peyton is raising an interesting discussion today as she seeks to explore the intersection of domestic extremism and emergency management during natural disasters. Before I officially pass the mic over to Peyton, Peyton, would you please explain to us a little bit more about how you found yourself interested in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So... In my professional background, I am a consultant and I work with an emergency management client. My work has really been centering on equity communications and community engagement with this client. But recently, we've begun to sort of dive into this mis, dis, and mal information during disaster response space. Traditionally, my national security interests have been with domestic extremism and emergency management. And so kind of in this world's collide sort of way. I'm really interested in thinking about how domestic extremist groups sort of co-opt disaster response and recovery as a way to increase their legitimacy. And especially with climate change, which is causing more frequent and severe disasters across the world, but in the U.S. especially. um, And we're seeing state governments and FEMA especially struggling with that. There have been examples of far-right domestic extremist groups jumping into disaster response and using these situations as a way to build their own legitimacy and gain followers. So that's sort of where I'm interested in this topic. Well, I'm really excited for you to dive into this conversation. We have Samantha Kuttner here with us today to help you talk through these issues. Samantha co-founded her organization Glitter Pill, which is focused on preventing the global spread of violent extremism and terrorism. So it should be definitely a fascinating conversation. So Peyton, over to you to take it away. Awesome. Thank you. Samantha, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. So just to kick it off, how did you find yourself working on national security issues and especially in the extremism space? Yeah, it's a very funny story. I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version. Uh, my original goal was to become a dance therapist. And when I went to the University of Nevada, Reno, I met one of my instructors, Dr. Alan Progetti. And it was through his principles of psychotherapy class that I really fell in love with the empirical side of research. And I realized that research and my conception of it 
was not entirely true. Like it didn't have to be confined into a lab or clinical setting. It could be a lot of deep philosophical questioning, deep thinking, close reading, engaging with societally important issues. And having kind of grown up halfway in and halfway out of the Orthodox Jewish community of Chabad, I was always interested in religious fundamentalism and how it can increase psychological rigidity. And some of my early research was about ways to promote psychological flexibility. This led to me examining what went wrong with former countering violent extremism programs and was more kind of in the in what you call the foreign terrorism space. But then right before grad school, a student at my university, Peter Svetanovich, became the poster child for the Unite the Right rally. And seeing my former roommate talk about, wow, this was the racist kid in my history class and now he's here, I realized how close to home extremism was and I immediately shifted my focus to domestic terrorism. And right around then, I noticed that there was a group backtracking from their involvement, claiming that members were not really who attended Charlottesville weren't really members. The group was just a fraternal drinking organization. And very shortly after that, I was approved by my review board to conduct ethnographic research with Proud Boys because so little was known about the group at the time. And it's been over six years of ethnographic research and primarily data-driven rebuttals to claims that they're just a fraternal drinking organization. And I wanted to talk about this because one of my earliest interactions with Gavin McGinnis was when I asked him a question about something else, he kind of volunteered information about how the group was depicted uncharitably. And he said that Will Summer and others said that the group was on looter patrol during Hurricane Harvey. And I got a glimpse very early on into the way that they position themselves in the public and the way they try to bob and weave and eventually came to learn that's part of the accelerationist strategy of sowing discord and distrust. Even the way that Gavin McGinnis framed this, this was November 2nd, 2017, right before he attempted to shut down my research project. He said that, you know, Proud Boys were there. This was Proud Boys from Ohio and Texas during Hurricane Harvey, rescuing people and handling supplies. They said that they were armed. And yes, it was effing dangerous. Everyone from Teen Vogue to CNN sees this domestic terror group Antifa as a reputable source. It's downright bizarre. They are mentally ill degenerates with no political agenda other than chaos. With no political agenda other than chaos, that's such an accurate reflection of what the Proud Boys represent. From early on, they needed Antifa as that contrast to organize. Anyway, I've had some very colorful interactions with members over the years of ethnographic research with leadership, Tario, and others. I also have a great community of extremism researchers doing cool work who have also wanted to contribute to this conversation. So I'm super excited to dive in. Awesome. Thank you so much. That Proud Boys anecdote is so incredibly interesting to me. When I was doing some of this background research to prep for today, um, during Hurricane Harvey, the, the Oath Keepers were also on the ground. I guess their narrative was that they were there to help with providing food and water and rebuilding structures that had been destroyed by the hurricane. Have you heard of any other examples where extremist groups, and those could be domestic or otherwise, have sort of co-opted disaster response in, in this way to build legitimacy for their cause or to just sort of make themselves known in this space? 
Yeah, I was talking to Barrett Gay. He's an analyst and also one of the co-hosts of the Terrorism Bad podcast. And I really appreciated some of his insights. He alerted me to how extremists co-opted disaster relief during Hurricane Katrina. There was a militia called Algiers Point Militia that was essentially able to kill several black men with impunity in the area. It's sad because of like the free-for-all that these militia members felt they had permission to engage in to target American citizens. Also from a data perspective, one of the issues with these types of incidents is underreporting, not just fears of retaliation of like individuals reporting things, but during natural disasters where infrastructure crumbles, records might not be kept as well. And people tend to look the other way more often than they should. There were multiple shootings that coroners just didn't really report on during that time, even though the majority of deaths during Hurricane Katrina were drownings. So, like, the exact number of killings by militia isn't really known. But in the case of, I believe it's Willie Lauren, he was 47, and a family member attested to the fact that he was killed by civilian gunmen. And these civilian gunmen were part of the Algiers Point militia. The other sad thing about that was that it it took two years and public outrage to begin to hold some of them accountable. And so that's one example. Some of the analysts uh, at Christopher Goldsmith's task force, Butler, talked about how Patriot Front more or less said the quiet part out loud. They were there to provide disaster relief, but only to white people and white families. And then recently, I was speaking to a proud boy who was present during January 6th, but did not go inside the Capitol and made that distinction pretty clear. I forget which natural disaster it was. There have been several, but it was within the past year. He was talking about how proud boys collectively were going to show up and help people in the city. And I remember it because it was... My first attempt to explain to a proud boy the concept of a mitzvah, <laughs> I was like, okay, let's let's do this. Because we had built up enough rapport where we could talk like that. You could have a whole other conversation on empathy and the limits of empathy with extremist groups. But for now, we have this rapport built up. I'm just going to explain this concept. A mitzvah is like doing a thing without the expectation of a reward or praise because it's the right thing to do. If you want to help people in a city that's impacted by a natural disaster, what would it matter if you wore a black and yellow Fred Perry or your regular clothes? Why do you have to make it known that you're a representative of this organization and you are helping? And that's always to highlight government incompetence and other things, but it's this kind of weird funhouse mirror image of the woke performativity that they always decry against liberals and leftists and people who engage in these kind of empty gestures. So I find that case interesting from a kind of guerrilla marketing perspective, how some of the Proud Boys see disaster relief and their attempt to like launder their ideology and further embed themselves with, you know, local law enforcement or EMTs or other figures when cities are in need. Those are a few. Those anecdotes are like really, really powerful. 
I kind of want to pivot a bit to sort of strategies to combat that sort of marketing. So I mentioned a bit earlier just about climate change and how that is affecting the disaster landscape across the world. But specifically talking about here in the U.S., we are going to continue to see more frequent and severe disasters in areas that traditionally experience disasters, but also in areas that might not be equipped to deal with those situations. Like I'm thinking of Hurricane Hillary. California was not not ready for that. They don't experience that very often. So I guess my question here is, how can the federal government, particularly FEMA, as they're responding to these disasters, ensure that extremists can't leverage these disasters as a means of propaganda, as a means to market themselves as being a legitimate group? I would like to say that the government can be proactive and responsive to emerging threats. But when the target is government itself, you can do everything right, technically, like biting, providing preemptive disaster relief uh, during hurricane, like in advance of Hurricane Idalia landing. And there will still be the narratives that circulate that it's only a matter of time before they start rounding up, you know, conservatives and other patriots into FEMA camps or like, what do they not want to tell you? What I think or where I think the power can lie is in grassroots creative resilience. I don't really advertise this a lot because I want to keep the intimacy of my collective, but Glitter Pill LLC formed out of the Glitter Pill community, which is a trauma-informed container for sustainable activism, in that we're always discussing ways to creatively respond to and counter extremist efforts to recruit. One of the things that we've been successful with on a lower level is converting mass harassment against predominantly female researchers of the far right into sources of amusement and products that are donated to a charity of their choosing. So like harnessing that energy at that level has been successful. But there's something really powerful that worth exploring on a bigger collective level about using extremist turnout in creative ways. So in some cities, organizations were saying like for every extremist individual who showed up, a certain amount of money would be matched to donate to a charity that actually does genuine good. The greater they show up, the more you can use that to generate support. That doesn't necessarily prevent any violence or efforts to intimidate, but it's, in my opinion, better than doing nothing or feeling passive in the face of them trying to recruit. I also think it's important to understand that extremists, when they march or try to provide disaster relief, are hoping for a government overreaction. And they're hoping for a violent response from people who show up to oppose them. That's different from just showing up in full force and outnumbering them, which is a pretty effective strategy. Any time that communities can come together and educate the public about the like the tactic that extremists are trying to engage in really reinforce community solidarity and resilience in creative ways is probably better than the government itself being the agent of change in that regard, even though they need to provide the necessary disaster relief because it's the right thing to do. And also so they don't further narratives that extremists can capitalize on that highlight 
the government not being as responsive. Sort of how the government lift up these trusted community voices that are already integrated in these communities. They're already sort of doing the work. And we see a lot of that with some of the community engagement work that I do, just not even related to combating misinformation, but just in general, like, this is how you apply for disaster assistance. Those messages are taken better by communities when it's coming from someone that they already trust, as opposed to coming from a person in a, you know, a FEMA vest or, you know, whatever government agency it is. So it's interesting that that same process can be applied to combating this extremist propaganda as well. Yeah, and I would take it a step further to say that I wouldn't say the government endorsed grassroots individuals as much as they organize independently and, and work in tandem, not necessarily connected. But if, you know, the government response is providing the majority of the disaster relief, then local communities who understand the regional context and local communities who understand their regional threats and any chatter if extremists from other regions are like descending into their town like some did during the Lewis County store incident recently. There's a combination of threat assessment and community resilience at the local level, which can be incredibly effective in addition to the primary support from the government. Yeah, absolutely. The next question, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, um, sort of thinking about the First Amendment and how extremist thought and speech is protected. You can, you can be an extremist. You can have these thoughts. There's also not anything that prevents these groups from organizing as volunteers during disaster response and recovery. So what strategies can the federal government use to sort of mitigate these consequences of extremist involvement during disaster response and recovery? And how can they restore that public trust in the government and reduce the impact that these extremist groups have on communities during these disaster situations? I would say that data and connecting the dots between individuals, events, networks, and any incidents, including violence that occur, would solve the issue of underreporting, assuming that companies like Glitterco LLC, organizations like the SPLC, organizations like the ADL, the Center on Extremism, all which have tracking components uh, and monitoring threat assessment. If there was a way for the government to fully invest in showing the actual raw data and making these connections clear, if events that go beyond just free speech occur in very specific networks who organize around specific narratives and have a fair amount of predictability in regard to the actions they're going to take, you can actually begin to hold some members accountable. Because even though they say that they're organizing and they're, you know, they're adhering to free speech, these are essentially violent shows of force. If you respond to violent shows of force, with actual physical violence, the opposing people, which could just be the average citizen who is opposed to fascism, could be depicted as the violent counterpart. And then that ties into the history of suppression of anyone opposing fascism and far-right extremism and neo-Nazism. So again, like really focusing on data, making that violent denial of diversity 
visible, as we call it, at Glitter Pill and the Khalifa Eiler Institute. We've had some analysts in New Zealand who have been doing this work and highlighting just the volume of incidents that go underreported because of fears in the community and fears of law enforcement that's supposed to protect these individuals being complicit with extremists. So if a national or international spotlight was shown on these incidents to show this behavior, make these you know violent acts clear, then we can begin to get at more and more accountability measures which can de deter additional violence. But it's a massive undertaking. And as someone who loves data and has a great team that also loves incident data, there are a lot more resources that can be provided, if not from the government, from charities and other organizations who believe in data-driven accountability measures. The data-driven approach is, I think, is super important. That's really interesting. Do you think your gender has had an impact on the way you've approached your work and why or why not? I grew up with my uh, grandfather, favorite person in the entire world, he was a jazz musician back in the day. Um, he told me, you know, what a lot of women get told, you have to be twice as good as the men to be taken half as seriously. So he really pushed us to excel in education and, you know, learning. And we love learning. I come from a culture that loves learning. And one thing that I've noticed is female expertise makes men and women very uncomfortable. When women who don't have a lot of support or models for what it's like to be out there and visible and doing the thing, see other women going for it, they might not see the invitation for them to do the same thing or see themselves as fully capable of doing the same thing. It might be a knee-jerk reaction to discount their expertise and the insights that they provide and then men not to generalize but being you know a, a decent looking female there's a lot of assumptions that you don't get to where you get because of your brain you get there because you're attractive and the doors open for you and uh you know everything's easy i mean it's been over six years of ethnographic research with Proud Boys. I and others in my network have been put on kill lists for doing this work. We wouldn't continue this work if we didn't genuinely care about keeping communities safe. But we still exist in a patriarchal society where women taking up space is often seen as inherently threatening. I think more women being front and center can help mitigate some of that. But when you are front and center, you're also at risk for a slew of harassment from men across all different political persuasions who do not want you to be there. I think there's strength in numbers. And I think that existing and just showing through the work that we do at Glitter Pill LLC, which is predominantly female analysts. I mean, we have my co-founder Bjorn, who's amazing. We have other analysts who are men, but the women who have the sensitivity to the gender dynamics of extremism and the threats and have had some experiences with the interpersonal dynamics of abusive individuals, like they have a certain sensitivity to these threats that make them very valuable in explaining, understanding, contextualizing, I hope, that more people begin to see men and women as equal in this space. 
I hope that overall, I mean, the field is, I could go on and on about the field itself, but I, I would hope that we all begin to see ourselves as collaborators in a shared fight rather than little fiefdoms or people siloing information or collectives. I mean, there's certainly predatory people you should look out for in these spaces, but, you know, the sense of being colleagues in shared meaningful work and supporting others whenever you can, I think will help offset some of the struggles the field faces overall and then some of the struggles that women face. It all comes back to the community and building those relationships. Thank you so much, Samantha. This has been such an amazing conversation and I'm so glad that I got to interview you today and talk to you about this. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I just want to jump in and say thank you both for walking us through these complex topics. And as Peyton said earlier, thank you, Samantha, for raising so many stories that helped us get such a better picture of the actions that some of these domestic extremist groups are, are doing. So thanks again. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time.